Well, today we conclude our review of the five solas of the Reformation. And so far we have considered how it is Scripture alone that reveals God to us for salvation. Sola Scriptura. And that we are justified through faith alone. Sola Fide. And that is by grace alone we receive this gift and believe and obey. Sola Gratia. And that it is in Jesus Christ alone, by His person and His work, that we are saved and being saved. Solus Christus. And all in all, these biblical ideas show us that it is not our traditions or experience or reason that reveals God to us. Nor is it our good works or wisdom that allows us to come into His presence. Nor is it our merit or morals or ethics or backgrounds that achieve for us His acceptance. And it is not by saints or sacraments, congregation or culture, that saves us. It is Jesus Christ alone. And so with these four ideas under our belt, it naturally leads us to this conclusion. All glory belongs to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. When we had nothing to offer the Lord but our own spiritual death, our own satanic influence, our own internal corruption with minds, hearts, bodies, and wills and souls warped by willing and willful sin, even then, when that's all we could bring to the table, so to speak, the Father loved us and sent His Son to live and die and rise for us And He sent us the Spirit to give us new life, hope, peace, and joy, and love in God. The Bible says that while we were strangers, while we were enemies, while we were adulterers and idolaters, while we were rebels and ruffians, while we were poor and sick and possessed and ignorant and filled to the brim with hate, even then, God loved us. We thought we were impressive as, as human beings when we built empires and industries, when we forged new technologies and crafted beautiful arts, when we explored the oceans and walked on the surface of the moon. But all of our glories have the same fate, dumped in the graveyard of history and swept away by the sands of time. But there is one glory that will last forever. And it's the glory of God alone. And here's the most wonderful thing about that glory. Is that it is a glory that He freely invites us into. To share an experience with Him. God does not hoard His own glory, even though He could well do that. He chooses to share it with people like us. A glory for us inglorious beings. Eternal life where we have a seat at the table. God's own table with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, here's the fact of the matter. I don't know one professing Christian of any denomination or tradition or theological persuasion that would disagree with those sentiments. I don't know anybody that would. But as with our other four teachings on Scripture, faith, grace, and Christ, 
when we start to get into the nuances of what God's glory alone looks like, well, that's when we start to have real and tangible disagreements. I think one thing that the five solas have in common, however, is how they all respond to our flawed way of seeing our spiritual reality. And what I mean by that is that we have a terribly difficult time as human beings of any persuasion seeing the deceit of the human heart. We always want to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We're prone to a kind of religiosity that always depends on our goodness as humans to work in tandem with God. And so we always see ourselves more highly than we ought to. We always uh, favor ourselves more than we really deserve. Or to put it in Lutheran terms, literally in the terms of Martin Luther, we have a theology of glory. That is, a theology of prosperity, of success, of victory and triumph of the human will. That's how we are naturally. We're exceptionalists deep down. We always admire power and wealth, human effort and achievement. We're drawn to these things and we expect God to be likewise impressed by what we can do. But the surprising truth is this. The stories of of, of the Scripture lead us to this conclusion. That Christ, who is God in human flesh, reveals Himself to us not first in glory, but first in the cross. When we want to understand what God shows us to be glorious, we have to go to Calvary's hill and see the Lord of glory crucified there. Jesus comes into this world not wrapped in the scarlet and blue and violet of royalty. He comes into this world not bejeweled in gold and diamonds with hundreds of servants at His beck and call, with thousands of soldiers at His command. That is not how God enters this world. The way that we're always impressed with people that command those things. Christ did not come into this world to reveal Himself exclusively in the vastness of cathedrals. Christ did not come into this world through the ivory towers of scholarship and the museums of Renaissance art or in the palaces of princes and in the throne of kings and queens. All things that we naturally think of as glorious. Rather, Christ revealed His divinity by being born in an animal trough. Christ revealed His deity in hand-hewn tables of His own making. Or when He dined with publicans and prostitutes. He revealed His glory when He got down on His knees to wash the disciples' muddy feet. He revealed His glory through furious tears at the graveyards of His friends. He revealed His glory in willing silence as He stood falsely accused, then stripped and beaten. He revealed His glory in prayers of forgiveness for His own executioners 
and his humble reliance on the Father as he dies in unjust and excruciating pain. Not to mention spiritual dereliction on an ancient torture device for the sake of those who abandoned him and executed him. That is where the glory of God is found. It's no wonder why Fleming Rutledge, the Episcopalian preacher, says this is the most irreligious symbol imaginable. The cross. There's nothing about the cross that we would naturally conclude is a sacred object. Quite the opposite. It's an object of shame. It's an object of embarrassment. It's an object where we see human blood and entrails and sweat and tears and slobber and we exalt that as the place where we discover God. It's a strange paradox. But as the Apostle Paul tells us, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power and glory of God to us that are being saved. Paul did not come to institute Christian rituals like baptism. Paul says he didn't also come to enumerate philosophical or cultural or political ideas. Paul says he came for one reason and one reason alone. To preach Christ crucified alone which is the power and the wisdom and dare we say the glory of God. Now the problem with this is that in the 16th century church, which by the way is not very different from our own 21st century problems today, is that we had a hard time believing this. We, for all of church history, have been prone to to seek God, to know God in all the wrong ways, specifically through human glory. Now, David Van Drunen, who has a book on God's glory, notes this, that many medieval theologians, that is the setting to which the Reformers were responding, many medieval theologians thought that they could understand the one true God by the speculative power of their own reason. So in other words, through their their scholarship, through their wisdom, through their worldly thinking. They figured they could get to God directly and perceive Him as He is in Himself if they only used their educated minds. And if they only used their religious gimmicks, then they could get to God. In other words, God could be known through human goodness, through human glory, through religious and academic and moral and political rigor. But to this, Luther and the Reformers objected because Scripture shows a very different portrait. Our only hope of knowing God is that He takes the initiative and reveals Himself to us. Knowing God is not about what we can achieve. Knowing God is about Him stripping away all of our illusions of control and revealing Himself through pure grace and mercy. The theology of glory 
is an exercise of human pretension. Sinful human beings cloaking their hubris, their pride, and seemingly pious religiosity. We love to do that. We love to pretend like we're put together when we come to church on Sunday morning. We wear our best. We straighten up. We brush our teeth and comb our hair and come and pretend to. Pre- we present a picture of ourselves that's not actually really the true us. So many evangelicals in this nation, so many Christians around the world think that if we come and present this false version of us that's squeaky clean and has no problems, then we'll get a passing grade with God. That's a theology of glory where we try to climb to heaven and get a peek at God and His majesty by our own being put together. But as Van Drunen points out, if we want to know God, we must know Him through His revelation that He provides to us. And He reveals Himself most clearly in Scripture. You know what else Scripture reveals besides God's character and His power and His authority and His self? It also reveals that we are in a desperate condition. That we are lost and dead in our sins. That the best we can do, even as religious people, is to incur incur wrath and judgment. We are nowhere near the theology of glory that we pretend that we are. We are nowhere near the religious or moral exaltation that we'd like to think of ourselves. And Luther saw the medieval church's error here. As long as sinful people, especially religious sinful people, (laughs) it's funny that the reformers thought the people that are the worst off and furthest from God are the most religious that think they can get to them, get to Him by their own trying. Those are the people that are actually the worst off. Jesus called those people twice the sons of hell. When we come to God and think that we, by our own resources, by our own traditions and experience and reason, by our own good works and personal merit, by our baptism or communion or prayer life or financial benevolence or devotion to the saints, we think that we, if we can come to God with that, what we find is that instead, the Almighty veils Himself from us. He hides from people that think that they can approach Him in their own good works. We cannot come to God through the blindness of human pride and expect to see God's glory. We can't do it. However, when we look for God through the unimaginably humble way of the cross, where we find a meek Jesus crucified and humiliated for us, then that is where God provides a genuine knowledge of Himself. When we try to climb our way to the top to get to God, we're further from Him than we ever have been. But when we go down into the darkness and we see Jesus on the cross and see that He's there for our sins, that is where we will find and see and know God. See, all that this world has ever produced in its own power and its own might are these so-called theologians of glory 
those that cannot see God in plain sight. They cannot see that God hides Himself in the suffering and the lowliness of Jesus. That the King of glory prefers, as Paul tells us, the path of weakness than to strength. That God prefers the folly of the cross to all of human wisdom and endeavor. Only then, when we go to that place to see that Jesus, can humanity really begin to see and experience glory. Now, it's true that the Bible does indeed talk about human glory. It's interesting. When we open up the Bible, one of the first things we get, one of the first impressions we get of humanity is their glory. Why? Because God makes this whole cosmos. He makes everything in it and His pinnacle, His greatest achievement, His greatest creation is that He makes His own image. Human beings, male and female. The reflection of God's nature and character. Nothing else has that. The stars don't have that. The seas don't have that. No animal has that. No tree has that. Only human beings are made in His image. That's a glorious thing. David reflects on this in the Psalms. In Psalm 8 specifically, where he tells us that we're only a little lower than the angels right now. And yet, we have dominion over all creation. These are glorious designations, are they not? The Bible has a high view of humanity. And Romans tells us that we believe, that if we believe, rather, in God's Son, though once we were guilty sinners, we will share in Christ's future glory and even have His own divine glory revealed in us in our lives. So the Bible does have a high view of humanity. But that high view of humanity and humanity's glory is always in connection with God. When we strive to find our own glory outside of God and His character, most specifically outside of Jesus, we find only shame and scorn. We see how this world operates. How for centuries, millennia of human history, we've built empires to ourselves, idols to ourselves. There's great emperors that, 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 that span continents at a time, that have great armies, that have whole ways of thinking about life and philosophy and, and art and science and religion that all glorifies themselves. We've seen that through many centuries and many different places and the result is always the same. That those people die and the world moves on and their glory is forgotten. When we try to build up our own Babel, we find that it comes crumbling down before we can finish it. And so if we truly desire to see and experience glory, we can only find that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
The paradox of our Christian faith is that while humanity's destiny was always supposed to be glory, glory as we think of it is not the path of that destiny. Rather, the cross is. This is more clearly seen, I think, to us in our Scripture passage for today. In the second letter to the Corinthians from the Apostle Paul, he, remember, is writing to these Christians that are having a heck of a time at being Christians. They're really struggling with it. The Corinthians rather have had nothing but a conflicted relationship with Paul and with one another. And although at one time they did glimpse the beauty and glory and majesty of Jesus at the cross, they've understood the Gospel, they soon after lost sight of it. You can be a Christian that understands the Gospel that comes to faith and soon abandons it for worldly glory. That needs to be a lesson to us, especially here in the exceptional nation of the United States. We can come to Jesus and instead of following His path and going to His kingdom, then we start to build up our own kingdom and take our own path. But we see how that just doesn't work out. Look at how the Corinthians treat one another. This is so American of them that they prefer to glorify themselves with immoral sexual liaisons. That they're constantly squabbling and and suing one another with petty lawsuits so they can get more wealth. They're having drunken feasts where they, they eat so much that they end up puking and they drink so much that they black out and don't even remember that this was supposed to be the Lord's Supper table that they were starting at. And they're excluding anybody that's too poor to get off their shift in time to come and eat with the, with the church family. I mean, all this behavior shows how we human beings, even us religious ones, are so tempted to think uh, selfishness is the better path to glory. But in fact, Paul pushes back against them for this reason. They outright rejected him for it when he tries to correct their way of thinking and teach the Gospel to them anew. And you know what they did instead? They went and found somebody that would, some apostles that would teach the way they wanted to. They found what Paul sarcastically calls the super-apostles. These are people, religious teachers, who say Jesus in name, but don't really worship Jesus in truth. They gain followers by being essentially uh, ancient versions of prosperity preachers. They're fancy orators. They tell good stories. They're good preachers. And they command attention with their authoritative blustering. They sound really confident when they talk about their religion. And so people are attracted to that. And on top of that, this is really what got the Corinthians interested. That they lived very wealthy and glamorous lifestyles. And they told people, give, give us money and we can keep going this way. And if you give us money, we'll tell you the secrets and you can live this way too. It's like watching the Trinity Broadcasting Network back in ancient Corinth. It's the same strategy. They used their glory 
their their prominence, their beauty, their uh, wealth to entice other people into their brand of self-serving religiosity. And that, folks, is a is as clear of a definition of a theology of glory as we could ever have. Namely, a theology of selfishness. But this is interesting. Here's how Paul responds to that fact. He doesn't combat them with his own credentials and try to say, well, I was educated in this way and I've done this. He doesn't do that at all. Instead, Paul does something surprising. He admits that he is not as impressive as they are. He's poor. He's old. He has bad eyesight. He's unimpressive in his speech. He's not a good preacher when it comes to rhetorical skill. He's not glorious at all, in other words, by the way we define glory. But 2 Corinthians 4.5 says this, For we did not come proclaiming ourselves. Paul didn't come to show you how impressive Paul was. Paul knew how unimpressive he was. And any impressive qualities he did have, well, those have been squandered by the fact that he used to have people murdered for thinking differently than him. We didn't come proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And ourselves as Your servants for Jesus' sake. To be a true believer is not to look at ourselves at all. It's not to proclaim our works, our beliefs, or anything at all. No Christian should place stock in their own faith or doctrine or congregation or tradition or practice or anything else, but instead, they should give all glory to God alone for everything we are and everything we have and everything we will be because we will be that, not in ourselves, but because of Jesus Christ in and with and for us. To see Jesus for who He really is as the crucified King does not mean that we see ourselves as His cronies. I fear, in, in, especially in American evangelicalism, that is what we have seen true discipleship is. That's what we think that we impose and enforce our religious will on others. That we bully that poor single mother trying to get through the holidays for her corporation mandating to say Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas, and we spit in her face for Jesus' name. That's cronyism. That is not what Jesus calls us to be. When we... Uh, when we are so self-righteous that we meet the, the gay person uh, that is in our life and, and treat them uh, like an animal because we're, we think we're just so put together as, and, 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 and we're just proud of our religion and, and proud of who we are and we're going to be hateful towards this fellow sinner who's been made in the image of God. To be... A Christian means the opposite of being a crony. It means 
becoming like Jesus, a humble servant and giver to all people. To everyone. Even our enemies. Even if it cost us everything. Our own mortal bodies included. Why? Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face, the tear-streaked, the blood-stained, the sweat-soaked, the sun-scorched face of Jesus Christ. The God who said, let there be and there was, both in Genesis 1 when the world came into order and in John 1 where the Word was the one that put things in order, is the God who shone the light of Jesus not only into the created world, but into our hearts. It had everything to do with His eternal benevolence, His boundless grace, His borderless compassion, His limitless mercy, and nothing to do with us that we have His light and life. He is the God who, as the late great African-American preacher Gardner C. Taylor said, as soon as He said, let there be, He is so powerful that all that was not was straining to become. That's how powerful this God is. While we were dead in our sins, God blazed like the sun illuminating our minds with the knowledge of His glory and the life-giving grace to know it. And what did this glory look like? What did God's glory revealed in human history look like? It didn't look like all the things that we think. A nice penthouse in Manhattan. Uh, uh, a nice 150-acre uh, mansion in the suburbs of Nashville, Tennessee. It didn't look like a, a, a beautiful beach house in Malibu, California. No. God's glory looked like the crucified body and smiling face of His own Son, Jesus, for sinners like us. Christian, do you want glory in your life? Do you want the resurrection? Do you want to have hope and peace? Do you want to experience joy and love for the future? Well, you will never find it in the governor's mansion or in the White House. You'll find it on the shadowy hillside of Golgotha, where the Lord of glory shone his immortal light to all the cosmos as he bowed his sacred head now wounded and gave up the ghost to make dead people like us live again. You will not find God's glory in America. You will not find it in republicanism or democracy. You won't find it in wealth or warfare or social influence or sexual gratification. Glory is not in the courts of Joe Biden or Donald Trump. 
It's not with Nancy Pelosi or Ron DeSantis. It's not in the pockets of Elon Musk or Jeffrey Bezos or Tim Cook or the Walton family. Glory is not in the beauty or talent of Beyonce or Harry Styles or Taylor Swift or Kanye West. Glory is in the blood and sweat and tears, the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ, our God, with us. His story begins, His glory begins in the backwaters of Bethlehem, in the stench of livestock. And His glory and His story takes us to the outskirts of Jerusalem. Not in the heart of the temple, but outside the city walls in the gore of a public lynching sanctioned by the church and the state. And yet there is no throne and no crown, no vindication or victory, nor love divine, nor life eternal for us without the cross of Jesus Christ. God's glory made known in history for us. And so when we say with the great musicians of old, with the Johann Sebastian Bach's and George Friedrich Handel's, who both wrote these great Soli Deo Gloria anthems and their soaring music, and as we say with the, with the, cistern, or, uh, the Cistercian rather, and Trappist monks who use the term Soli Deo Gloria in their contemplative devotion. We say with them, full-throated, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. For Scripture alone has revealed to us that by faith alone, through grace alone, and Jesus Christ alone, we are saved. And since that is true, we say, glory alone to His name. Let's pray. Lord, we give You all the thanks and praise. It's not according to us, but to Your triune work as Father, Son, and Spirit that we are saved. All glory to You, Lord Christ. Father, send Your Spirit to empower us to live a cross-shaped life like Jesus before us. And through the paradox of giving our lives away, for Your glory. May we one day see You and be glorified through Your resurrection which You share with us. All that we ask and say and do is through the name and the power and the work and the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our Messiah King and our Savior God. And it is in His name we pray. Amen.